Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as you know, we've started a new series, and it's uh, looking at First uh, Corinthians. Just a wee bit of an explanation uh, from my opening slide here this morning. Um, I've titled it this morning, The Offense of the Cross. We'll be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through to chapter 2, verse 5. But there's a little bit of a story behind this picture. I don't know if any of you recognize it, but it's um, Christ of St. John of the Cross by Salvador Dali. Oh, yes. Thank you very much, Marsha. Bible monitor. As I was saying, there's a little bit of a story behind this picture. The reason why I chose it, because, you know, I could have chosen a plethora of pictures representing the cross. But there's a little bit of story behind this one. And uh, I dare say, possibly only because it could happen in Glasgow. <laughs> but this picture hangs in the Kelvin Grove galleries in Glasgow. And uh, when I thought about it, it just sort of tied in with the theme, the title, The Offence of the Cross. Because this picture has been attacked, uh, I think, on two occasions. Uh, once by uh, somebody with a sharp rock, and uh, secondly, somebody with a sword. As I say, only in Glasgow would somebody be carrying a sword and deface this painting. But there you are, the offence of the cross, and well, it's more than just a painting. With that, can I invite you to turn to First Corinthians chapter 1, and again, as I say, we'll be reading verses 18 through to chapter 2, verse 5. If you are using one of the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 1144. I'll just give you a moment to find it if you're looking it up. Okay. And it reads, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of no noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us 
wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. Amen. You know, in the opening verse of that passage, it read, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. You know, it's, nobody likes being called a fool. Nobody would uh, seek to promote themselves as a moron. And I think that's a, a fairly safe assumption. You know, to do so would be to suggest like you've got an unbalanced mind or some serious uh, self-esteem issues. Because we all want people to think well of us, look up to us, respect our opinion, look for our advice even. We don't want to be the butt of jokes or ridicule or considered less than everyone else. It's just human nature. We want to keep our heads above water. We want to keep our heads above ignorance, or at least to appear to have our heads above ignorance. Because everybody values wisdom. But when our concept, or more precisely, the, the world's concept of wisdom is confronted with the cross of Christ, there's a sudden fracture. Two very different paths are set before us and we're faced with an inevitable decision to choose the way of Christ or the way of the world. You know, we can't escape from it. Either way, there will be a cost. One is to lose face in the sight of the world, and the other is to lose eternal life in God. And when you, you, you bring it down to that, I mean, wisdom would say, well, choose life. But many don't. And why is that? Why is the cross foolishness to the world? Why is it a stumbling block to the Jew and, and foolishness to the Greek? The problem is, as much as we applaud wisdom, as much as we celebrate wisdom, our appreciation of it, you could say, is fair weather. It's transient, selective even. Selective to the extent that whatever is really expedient to my needs, whatever serves my needs, my interests, my desires, my wants, I will call that wisdom. And herein lies the wisdom of the world in a nutshell. It's the preservation of self, the advancements of self above others, 
Even when it appears, you know, altruistic or cooperative or collective, you can be sure that I will still get my king's portion of the cake. And the path for those who would follow Jesus, the way is clear. It's the way of the cross. The cross is like the, the diametric opposite. It's the advancement of others above the needs of self. You know, the two couldn't be further apart. But someone might claim, well, that's not quite true, is it? My interests in the cross are definitely selfish. I want eternal life for me. The world can go to hell, but, you know, I want it for me. Is that any different from the way of the world? Well, consider some of the things that Jesus said. Whoever wants to be great must become the servant of all. Well, I might be able to do that for a season. I could make a pretense of servitude for a season if it means if I, I get what I want. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant. You know, you think that God could be hoodwinked or deceived or mocked. God knows the desires of our hearts. And Jesus' motto, if you like, was greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. It doesn't sit well with the wisdom of the world. What else did he say? Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life from me will find it. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we have to, it gives us cause to think, how much did he give? How much did he sacrifice for me, for you, and for the world? We can't comprehend it. We can't imagine it. That he who is above all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Emmanuel, God with us, that he should reduce himself to the level of a servant. You know, the idea that the creator of all things should take on the role of a servant, and not just a servant, but a servant's servant, when he washed his disciples' feet. You know, the significance of that should never be lost to us. You know, especially when envy, resentment, jealousy, and strife can erupt so easily among us. Jesus showed us a better way. You know, and the feuds that have been arising in the Corinthian church suggest that they haven't grasped this. They've forgotten this. And so they need to be brought back to ground zero, if you like, of the very faith that they protest. You know, if we take time to consider, take time to reflect on the cross, it has a way of disarming us. Because any claim to we have of power, authority, dominion over others, it stands there as a testimony to the wisdom of and the love of God, even the foolishness of God, if it can even be described as that. And Jesus did warn that the way to eternal life was a narrow path. There's nothing attractive in its passage. And by its very nature, it rejects the proud. It repels the greedy. In order to receive the cross, we need to humble ourselves. And I think this is part of Paul's issue with the Corinthians. And that they have a, a tenuous grasp of the cross. 
At best, they've grasped aspects of it. But at worst, they've become, or in become, in danger of becoming like the soldiers who sat at the foot of the cross and cast lots among themselves to see what they could gain from a crucified man. He said that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Greek. He identifies two obstacles, God's plan for redemption, the rescue for world, the rescue for individuals. But we need to understand, first of all, that Paul isn't being uh, ethnocentric here as if he's just referring to two um, groups of people by nationality. Those, those of Jewish national descent or those of Greek national descent. In a sense, he's effectively covering the whole of the human family. But there are two particular worldviews, religious views, philosophical views on the understanding of God. But the premise is still the same. Neither of them can comprehend the wisdom of God in the cross. You know, to the Jew, Paul is referring to the, the mindset that Paul recognized within his own people. And he himself described himself as a Jew among Jews. He was a Pharisee of the highest order. You know, if he wanted an idealized Jew of his time, well, Paul would have been a strong contender. But the prejudice that he identified in the mindset wasn't difficult to discern because he was brought to a realization of them himself when he was confronted by the risen Christ. But the question still is, what is the particular stumbling block that Paul recognized among his people that made the cross so offensive to them? You know, the irony is that the people demanded of Jesus, we want a sign, we want to see a sign. And he gave them a sign, but not a sign on their terms. Jesus said to them, the only sign that you will receive will be the sign of Jonah. You know, referring to that incident when Jonah was seemingly swallowed by death and re-emerged three days later in the belly of a whale or a big fish. Jesus was alluding to his death and his resurrection, but it left a sour taste in their mouths. Jesus wasn't going to be swallowed by Moby Dick on the, the shores of Lake Galilee. It was a cross. It was that offensive cross. We have to understand that crucifixion was, was a sign of oppression to the Jew. It was an oppression by an ungodly Gentile government. What is that revering such a thing as that? It was the ultimate sign of defeat. The cross was reserved for the oppressed ethnic groups in the Roman Empire. No Roman citizen would ever suffer it. That in itself would have been objectionable enough. You know, it would be like walking into um, Hollywood, the SNP government, and wearing a David Cameron appreciation t-shirt. You know, celebrating the Conservatives' victory in the general election and calling for a reintroduction of the poll tax. They would not be well received, to say the least. On that level, it was an offense to the Jewish national identity and the hope of national independence. On another level, it had the connotations of a man cursed by God. And Paul draws allusion to this when he quotes from Deuteronomy. 
Let me just read a little bit of it. It says, in Deuteronomy 21, If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and a body is exposed in a tree, you must not leave the body hanging on a pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You know, besides the shame and the degradation of this manner of death, the executed person would be unable to fall to their knees as a final act of repentance before God, thereby implying they were under like an irrevocable curse by God. If that was the understanding, if that was the mindset, then how could such a person be the Messiah then? How could such a man as this be the hope of a nation? How could the anointed one ever be truly be cursed by God? On the contrary, that the Messiah would have been blessed. Blessed by God to rule over Israel and usher in a worldwide peace. There was no precedent for this kind of Messiah. You see, in a mindset, God works in a certain way. I mean, just think of the, the, the judges. We were opposed. God's raised up a judge. Joshua, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, they came, they conquered, we were free again. It was a simple formula. But when we start applying formulas to God, He ceases to be God, but mere, a mere solution to a problem. We must never forget to recognize God for who He is and to worship God for who He is not what we want them to be. You remember the occasion in Exodus when the, the, the people made for themselves an image of God, a golden calf. You know, if anyone could have made an image of God, what, what kind of image would it be? Well, in their minds, you know, a golden calf was pretty good because it signified power and strength, and God had displayed that when he rescued them from Egypt. But God had forbidden that anything cast by human hands should ever be, in any sense, represent him. And the reason is because they're always selective. They represent those aspects of God that only satisfy our sensibilities, our wants. But this wasn't a one-off event in history. It still happens today. Again and again, we brush under the carpet those aspects of God that we find unappealing or unattractive or kind of awkward or ask something of us. And we seize upon the more appealing aspects of God. You see, the people had a vision of their own, Jew and Corinthian alike. They had a selective concept of God and one that worked for them. You know, the strange thing is, even in the face of written testimony of God, the prophecies contained in Isaiah, the Psalms, and Zechariah, the idea of a suffering Messiah was unappealing to their sensibilities. And Jesus encountered this himself amongst his own disciples. They couldn't grasp, they didn't wish to grasp the idea of a suffering Messiah. So why is it still offensive in the light of Scripture then? Why is it still repugnant? It's because it makes us complicit in his death. And from that there is no escape. Ignorance is no defense. Neither is intellectual philosophizing, which was a stumbling block to the rest of the world. 
Nobody would deny that the cross was barbaric and cruel. And to the Greek mind, the idea of a man hanging on a cross was a symbol of shame, disgrace, weakness. You know, one of the earliest depictions of the crucifixion was believed to be, I think it was going to come up on the screen, the Alex Minos Graffito. As its name suggests, it is what it is, graffiti. It was unearthed in Rome and dates back to AD 200. And in the same spirit of the things that tend to be written in underpasses on the back of the school wall that nobody goes, <laughs> it was daubed there to ridicule Christians, or one particular Christian, somebody called Alex Minos. But the thing is, there's no profane language in this graffiti. It simply reads, Alex Minos worships his God. The offense is in the depiction of a, human, of a human figure on a cross. This in itself, this is the foolishness that the Greeks despised. To consider that God, our God, might sully themselves and become physical form and subject themselves to a tortuous death. It's unfathomable. It's not possible. To the Greek, the concept of God was so far removed from physical reality that it was more of a philosophical concept. God was thought. God was wisdom in its purest form, an ideal without form. It was learning. It was virtue. It was aesthetics. It was strength. The divine mind was an unmoved mover, a construct that gave order and purpose to the universe. You see, highfalutin ideas about God and concepts do not sit well with blood and dirt. The sterile, pristine God of the Greek thinking does not relate to real life of a blooded form of a man, scourged, stripped, flesh torn to shreds, pierced by thorn and nail and hanging from a cross, gasping his last breath. It, it's completely unfathomable. The cross stands as an affront to the wisdom of the world. And it tears up the illusions that we, we paint of ourselves and the illusions that we paint of God. Because the cross says as much about us as it does about God. You see, the cross, the crucifixion, it stands as almost like a, an indelible mark in human history. It can't be rubbed away. It's there. And it's when God broke in and said, this is the real state of affairs, folks. You're so lost you're so confused. You're willful and you are disobedient. But you think yourselves the center of the universe. No more pretense, no more self-delusions. Your wisdom, your achievements, your lofty ideas, your philosophical musings on life, your status, your spheres of influence, your reputation, your skill, your intellect, they can't comprehend this. I became flesh. I mocked among you, I ate with you, I drank with you. I laughed and I mourned with you. I told you the truth, but you rejected it in favor of a lie. You know, this quote from C.S. Lewis, it's one of those kind of things you read in life and it kind of sticks with you. It, it, in some way, it haunts you is the right word, but... It's quite a sobering um, verse, and let me read it to you. It's, it's a quote from his book, The Weight of Glory. 
And it's this, it reads, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what it's meant by an offer by a holiday by the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased and far too easily deceived. Deceived by our own imaginations at times. You know, the final affront of the cross is that it reveals the unsavory truth about every person's spiritual state. You know, whether we're a prince, whether we're a pauper, the idea of Jesus suffering on a cross, we can accept that as a historical fact. We, we can't remove it. It's there. But it's the purpose and the reason for his suffering that offends us and deflates our pride. It's a scandal and an insult. And it's ultimately a verdict about the insufficiency of human effort to attain righteousness with God. You see, human effort at its very best, its merits are useless before God. To be told that you're wrong about yourself, to be shown that you're lacking in something, nobody wants to hear that. You know, they say that the ego needs uh, nine positive statements to recover from one negative whether it's true or whether it's false. And to be told that despite your powers, your influence, your status, your position in society, your good character, your reputation, your achievements, your family background, whatever it is you prize about yourself, that despite these things, you're ultimately no different from the vilest of sinners. How do you like that? <laughs> It's not flattering to be told that, is it? To be told that we're broken and helpless and deserving of death. The world worships the idealized man or woman, whereas God wants us to confess our inner bankruptcy and our need for Him. The Corinthians need to draw back and remember the roots. We all need to remember our roots. One of you ever watched that program, uh, Who Do You Think You Are? I don't know if it's still on, but I've seen episodes of it. You know, and it's, it's funny where celebrities, or certainly publicly known people, have got on the show and often wondered, I wonder what my family history you know, will take me back to. And it's often sometimes quite shocking and quite surprising what they discover. You know, one of them, Ainsley Harriet, he thought he, uh, dating back his ancestry, would take him back to um, slavery. What I never realized there was that his great-great-grandfather was actually a white slave trader, not a slave. Jeremy Paxman, a uh, recognized face on Question Time. You know, he was brought to tears when he discovered that his great-great-grandmother lived in abject poverty and he refused help from the state because she raised an illegitimate child. It's strange the things you can discover about yourself, isn't it? And about your roots. 
You know, it's not surprising that those who most readily responded to the gospel were the dregs of society. I mean, what does Paul say in verse 26? Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things. And for what purpose? So that no one may boast before him. You see, the cross is a great equalizer. We're all the same. We all must come via the cross. And the Corinthians have become and in danger of becoming untethered from the fact that they have been saved by grace. It's through the redemptive sacrifice of Christ. They've got nothing, nothing to boast in. They're the beneficiaries of something Christ has done for them. And so they cannot assume hierarchy over one another, let alone the rest of the world. You bring it back down to the barren zero, it's grace, all grace. You know, and it's the same today, regardless of our social standing and our own or in anybody else's minds or even in their eyes. We've got nothing to boast in but Christ alone. And even Paul, as brilliant as he was in mind and spirit, he had nothing to boast but Christ. He came among them weak and trembling, and he was resolved to boast in nothing but Christ. He was done with the world's games. And so it is the same for us as well. When we come to the cross, there is a kind of exchange. To experience the power of the cross, we need to hang our ego, our reputation. Any worth in the world's eyes, we need to hang it on the cross. And the righteousness and the holiness and the redemption will be ours. You see, it is free, but it isn't cheap. And so the question is, are you done with keeping up with the Joneses? Present Joneses, <laughs> not referring to. <laughs> but we come today, maybe you've come here today, and you've come to that stop in the road, and it's always the same one. It's a crossroads. Is it the way of the cross? Or is it the way of the world? Is it Christ? Or is it comfort? Let's pray.